Hello one, hello all. Welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your humble host, Ray Harkins, sitting here in Southern California, being manic as ever. My life has, I feel like it's spun out of control. Even though I've set all these things up in regards to travel and stuff in general, it's, it's getting unmanageable. I'm exhausted. But anyways, I'll get into that in a minute. The guest this week is Mr. James Shotwell. He is a journalist. He started a website called Under the Gun Review, which is a very awesome site that covers music, movies, basically most things pop culture with a independent music twist. And uh, he also helps run the sort of social media and online presence of an amazing service called Holix. I know that's going to sound super, super boring, but Holix is probably what I would say 80% of your favorite record labels are using. This is how they send out promos to journalists and friends and bands or whatever, because obviously, as we all know, records leak all the time. And there are, are many companies that have started up to help curb that because nothing is more of a bummer than when you, as a record label, send something to a journalist and then all of a sudden it ends up online. Not saying that it's particularly that journalist's fault, but sometimes things happen and records leak like three months in advance. I can think of many examples, Thrice, Daylight, There's the list goes on. But anyways, Holix is a service that uh, basically helps combat that, and uh, it's it helps keep the record labels that you love around. So anyways, that was just, just a little context for who this person is and what they do. So more on him in a minute. Let's get into some, some updates, some cool stuff, some dispatches from the road. So visit propertyofzach.com. Great media partner. Been hanging out with him a lot recently. Seen him all over the place. And it's awesome. So I like that. Then, something very exciting. This is this is a personal thing. And I obviously, I, this is a form in which I am able to uh, promote stuff. So, you know, I'm going to go ahead and be a little self-serving and reflect on this. So, I, as I've mentioned before, and as some of you may even listen to this podcast only because you knew me from this particular thing. So I used to sing in a band called Taken. We were around from about 97 till about 2004. If you want to get all the nitty gritty details on it, just look online or you can even dive way back in the archives. I think it's episode number 25. I had a friend interview me. And so you can hear more about that. But basically, I sang for this band. We were important to a very select group of people. And it was awesome. And it's afforded me so many opportunities in my life. And I'm thankful for that. So we decided to uh, kind of get back together and write some new music. And uh, we signed with a record label called Other People Records. And we are releasing our discography on vinyl and digitally. <laughs> It's remastered and new artwork, so much fun stuff. I'm just super excited about it because it's vinyl is a format that I love so much. And to be able to preserve this music for a different generation of kids is is awesome. So yes, you'll be able to, I'll, I'll plug the pre-order and stuff like that. And on top of all that, we're playing a live show. If you're in the Southern California area or have plans to come to Southern California, in December, December 19th, we're playing with an amazing band called Misery Signals at the Glass House in Pomona. Tickets are selling very, very well. So if you plan on attending, I would recommend you buy them before you show up and be bummed that because the show sold out. So thank you to everybody who has shown support of this this resurgence and reanimation of an old band. There was an interesting thing that kind of splintered off of that. It was a very interesting comment I actually saw on Lambgoat, which is a great music news website similar to Property of Zach. They cover more of the metal and hard music world, but there's a comment where, and it, it resonated with me. You know, I know you're not supposed to read the comments about you, but everybody does it, and that's a reality. So the the person was basically like, oh, all of you people fawning over Taken, you know, all of the, these, these Tumblr kids and these people who are of a younger generation that hold these bands up when realistically they were really terrible at the time when they existed. I agree with that guy wholeheartedly. It is very interesting to see this resurgence of bands that, uh, you know, whatever, American football, basement, mineral, the list can go on and on where they were playing to no one when they were around. And then all of a sudden they're selling out these massive venues. That is not the case specifically for Taken. We are not selling out anywhere. Uh, the very, very best, we're going to be able to sell out a place like Chain Reaction and that's 400 kids. I'm not making light of that because that's incredible, but it is really interesting to see these, these, uh, 
the retrospective glance at bands and being like they were so important and just no one cared about them at the time. So, I mean, it, it can go back even, obviously, even a further generation where it's like bands like uh, Rorschach and Born Against and like all these sort of metallic-ish hardcore bands no one cared about at the time. And then now they're kind of held up in esteem, rightfully so, because both of those bands I mentioned are really good. But it is interesting to see how much nostalgia plays a factor in these sort of reunions and the dialogue that happens around them. So anyways... Thank you for the comment, anonymous user on Lambgoat. <laughs> it got me. It got me thinking. One last other shout out to a, an amazing company. For those of you that listen to this show for sort of like the DIY independent business owners starting things up from scratch, there's a company. Just Google DOS Bootleg, and you can find an Etsy store. And I know you, you hear Etsy, and you're like, "Oh, cool. Do they make baskets or do they make children's clothes?" No, no, no. So this is a dude that takes iconic images from movies, albeit maybe not the most legal way, but I am, I'm, I'm not going to comment on that. I am not a lawyer. Uh, he puts amazing images on shirts for you to purchase. He has stuff like Twin Peaks and so much rad stuff. He just recently sent me a bunch of cool shirts. So I got like Ghostbusters and uh, Lost in Translation. Basically, if you are a fan of independent art, you're probably going to like what he does. So yeah, like I said, Google DOS bootleg. And thank you very much to the person who owns it, which I won't mention by name. It's it's a mystery. You'll never know. <laughs> Anyways, so James Shotwell. Like I said, he is a, he's a journalist. And I always like to bring these people on to have a long discussion about, you know, how they got started writing and, and all that sort of stuff, because that's that's where I came from as well. When I was about 18 or 19, I had an obsession with writing and starting a zine and doing all that. And uh, so I started to contribute for a ton of magazines and interview a ton of people. And then, uh, you know, it just, it became very difficult to keep that up as a passion project when bands and the idea of making money and all these other things pulled me away from it. So I always like to see the people that can kind of carve out their own space within that game, so to speak. So, and lo and behold, he has a huge passion for Christian hardcore punk, whatever you like to call it, Christian independent music. And I love tripping across people that have had a similar experience to me in regards to that stuff. So anyways... We'll dive into it. Here's my conversation with James, and I'll talk to you after that. Like I was aware of uh, Under the Gun, uh, just you know, by existing on the internet and reading stuff. It, it was your professionalism and tenacity in which you know made me be like, you know what? Like, yeah, this this dude's on the level. When we were emailing about you know you, you appearing on this show, it, it's interesting because like I think that there's a line that's towed between you know being professional and then being like, yo, bro, like what's up, dude? Um, have you found yourself trying to navigate that in regards to like, you know, sort of a, a dude to dude interaction and then like, no, I need to be taken professionally and seriously. Um, you know, how, how have you felt that voice has changed within your own head as, as you, you know, matriculate through the uh, music industry? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with like growing up because when I started, I can remember, and I have no qualms admitting this, but when I first started like blogging and kind of getting my name out there, I had this weird idea in my head, probably from being a child that came up in the MySpace era, where I was like, if I just act like I'm famous already, or like I know what I'm doing, people will agree with me. People will just be like, yeah, well, he seems to know what he's doing, so we should listen to whatever he has to say. And over time, I realized that is a horrible idea. <laughs> like That leads people down the worst path ever. For a long time, that's what it was, and I think at some point, it just kind of I mean, when I got the job at Holix last year, I realized that I was going to be in this position where somebody else was going to trust me to kind of be the voice for their company and not something that I created. And then I can just kind of say whatever I want because it's my baby. And if someone doesn't like it, that's okay. I had to kind of start thinking a little bit more big picture. And so it required me to kind of go back to people I had talked to for years through Under the Gun as like you said, like, hey, dude, what's up? How's it going? And then be like, hi, I'm like a social media coordinator. I'm a publicist now and I am trying to do something in a professional state. And then they reply and they're just like, isn't this the under the gun guy? Like, yeah. isn't that who you are? Like, why, why are we doing this? And I'm like, hold on. I just, just give me a second. Let me, let me show you my <laughs> song and dance real quick. <laughs> no, it, it is interesting. Cause I, I do feel like there's something to be said about, you know, learning that skill because I, I don't think 
for a lot of people, it doesn't come, you know, innately, it just comes through, you know, repetition and practice and knowing the sort of knowing the person that you were going to be reaching out to, too, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that if they are, if they do seem like they are, they prefer that casualness, then, you know, maybe that's the approach that you take. But that's interesting that the authoritative voice that you took early on to where it's like, oh, yeah, like I, I know exactly what I'm doing and I'm, I'm 16 years old. Like, of course. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you why I did it that way. Um, I, I don't even remember where I got pointed in this direction, probably something on the internet. It all, it all comes back to the internet at some point. Um, but at one point I got really into the writing of Abby Hoffman. And the best way I can tell Abby Hoffman to people who don't know who he is, is when you watch Forrest Gump, he's the guy with the American flag t-shirt saying the F word a lot in front of the Washington Monument. Yeah, it's exactly. a big scene in the movie and Forrest says that. He's like, I don't know who he was, but he, he liked the F word a lot. Yeah. <laughs> he wrote this book in the 70s called Steal This Book. And every single, it's not like a classic novel or anything. It's a series of ideas on how to get free stuff out of life. So if you want to get free food from a restaurant, you should go in and complain and then they'll give you your bill for free. Really shady stuff like that. It's it's terrible. Um, and some of it's really outdated now, but there was a section about how to get free vinyl records. And at the time, whenever I was reading this at like 18, 19, I had no money and I was like, that, that appeals to me. Mm-hmm. And it had this whole chapter about how if you started a, if you act like you had a publication, I guess it was way harder back in the 70s, but his idea was to go to a print shop and print on off a fake one sheet for your magazine and then you can send that to a record label and be like oh I have a magazine send me records and they'll send you records for free and I was like well I could do that with the internet I could just start a website and be like oh I'm this voice in music and you should send me records and I did it and people sent me records that definitely is that speaks to two different things I mean the the idea of I mean yeah he's that book is is incredible for so many facets of just describing the counterculture that started to exist within the context of dude let's live off the grid like let's remove ourselves from society and this is how we can do it from a practical level but then the fake voice in which you can put on <laughs> to potentially yeah. uh you know make yourself make yourself seem more important or valuable to the people you are pitching yourself to i mean i think that everybody does that at some capacity yeah, I mean, it's how I think you have to get your start. You kind of have to, you know, people have to believe that you know what you're talking about, whether or not you actually do. Right. And I think that's kind of where it starts. And if, if you can sell one person on it, it's so much easier to do it again. But what I found was it worked for a while. And then there came a point where I, I don't know, maybe it's like the first time I went to South by Southwest and I kind of really met some of these people in person. And I was just like, oh, they all know way more than I do. And like there's I still have so much more to learn. And I'm happy that they've accepted me and brought me into the circle. And I hope that maybe they recognize that I don't know everything yet. And they're just kind of playing along. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it. You know, it worked out over time, I guess. So that was like a, a very definitive moment when you actually started to meet a lot of the people you've been dealing with over email for a long time. Uh, and that kind of t- turned turned something in your head that was like, oh, okay, maybe maybe this is how I can do it moving forward. Yeah, I, I don't really know what I thought when I started this site, what my plan was. I had been writing for another website that no longer exists called High Beam Review for a while. And I kind of had the idea in my head because of Abby Hoffman to do my own thing and then get all of the records for myself in a very selfish, only child kind of way. <laughs> Sure. And uh, so, so we launched the site and I was doing interviews like the very first thing we ever did on Under the Gun was an interview with Play Radio Play, which dates me and the site way, way, <laughs> way back, at the, way, way back at the end of the MySpace age. And uh, we, we did that interview. And from the start, I was kind of in it for myself. And I thought, you know, I'll just see what I can what I can kind of get out of it for me. And then as it as it started to kind of get an audience, I realized there was people actually listening to what I had to say. And I was like, oh, I'm in a pa- I'm in a position now where I could actually make a difference. Maybe not a big difference, but I can make a difference on some level, whether it's, you know, saying something sucks that I think a lot of people say is great or on a better note, you know, picking up an artist that doesn't get a lot of exposure and bringing them to the world. And as soon as that kind of clicked in my head, I kind of started to take it more seriously. And I kind of got way more invested in finding a great unsigned artist or finding a great album that I thought I could just push and push and push on people that that kind of appealed to me. And knowing that it was so easy to access a place where you could have a voice and have that kind of influence I don't know, it was weird because, like you say, you kind of come into it acting like you know what's going on. And uh, then it kind of clicks that, holy crap, like people people are letting you actually do this now. Like you're, you're in it now. 
it took a long time for me to actually make the switch, but I was trying for a very long time. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, I definitely think that there's something to be said, especially you growing up in the Midwest, which is, you know, never considered a cultural hub for anything besides, you know, like Chicago, Louisville, Austin, like these these areas that, um, you know, have been very fertile for music. I, I'm sure in some respects it was a isolating experience where you were like, well, I'm not in L.A. or New York, like, so I'm not going to meet a lot of these people right away. Was that was that an element also of like, huh, like this is, you know, I'm, I'm kind of doing my own thing out here. <laughs> yeah, uh, it really was. Um, there was nothing in the Midwest. In fact, what, when I really got my first start was my family moved to Michigan from Ohio when I was just 10 years old, nine years old, going on 10. And there was a local venue that had just opened up in the town that we lived in. It was like a town of like 3,000 people. And it went out of business uh, like two years later. And I, I kept thinking about how much I loved it because my parents had taken me there. They were big fans of rock music. And when I was in high school and I was kind of playing music myself and I had friends in bands, I convinced the owners to let us put on a show there because they still own the building and such. And it did so well that we got to bring it back and kind of book shows for a while. And so from the moment that that kind of took off, I was like, okay, now I have something. Because up to that point, I was like, I really like the music industry and I enjoy being a fan of it. But like you said, it's nowhere near me. And when that door kind of opened and it was like, well, it's possible to make a scene yourself, which is a concept that didn't really exist in my farming town up until we did it. And uh, once that was kind of possible, I was like, okay, now I guess if we can keep doing this, if we can keep finding doors and opening them ourselves, then people will come and we can kind of see what happens from there. I've been able to experience firsthand in regards to, uh, you know, like touring in a band for years. Some of the most memorable shows I have in my head are the ones exactly like you're describing, because not only is it an area that is starved for entertainment <laughs> and like bands <laughs> coming through. And then when a band actually does come through, it's like, dude, it doesn't matter what it sounds like. Let's just go to the show. And so it's like playing these random towns in, you know, Indiana, Illinois or whatever, you know, it's like, Oh my gosh, like there's 300 some odd kids showing up here. Like, this is weird. And it's like, <laughs> you know, you could play New York city to four people. And it's like, yeah, it, it I, I'm sure you did feel that sort of, like you were saying, that sense of responsibility in regards to being like, oh, like, let's take care of this and foster this, not just from like a selfish level, but from like a sort of community-based level as well. I'll tell you, I still think about how hard it was when I left. I knew that there was not going to like the torch wasn't going to get passed on. Like the shows were good, but it wasn't generating so much money that the family was like, well, when you go off to college, we'll find somebody else who wants to come in and take a chance with them and do this all over again. So it was really the end of an era when I left an era, not error. I yeah. hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, you probably, and, you probably made some errors. Let's be honest. Yeah, I definitely made some errors. Um, but we did one last show in the town and I remember sitting there and it, it was so incredibly hard for me to like walk away and know that like this, this wasn't going to happen again. And it's something that I think is kind of carried over to UTG because I've done it for going on seven years. Next year will be seven years. And in that time I've gotten jobs at other industry startups and I went on work tour for a year and stuff. And I keep coming back to it because it's, it's so hard to kind of, like you said, like start something like that and then nurture it. And then at some point be like, okay, well now I guess I'll just put it out to pasture or whatever. Like that's not something that I have found the ability to do very well yet. Yeah. No, it, it, yeah. It's hard. It's hard when you invest so much. I like to call it sweat equity when it's, you, you've, <laughs> you've poured so much into it that it's like, oh, I, uh, I guess I'll leave this alone, but I don't want to. It's something interesting. It's just like poking around, uh, that I, I saw from other interviews you did. Um, you know, you mentioned a band audio adrenaline as, yeah. as being a very huge uh, factor in your life as far as just like, <laughs> you know, bringing you into music and stuff like that. And I mean, I would say 98% of the people that exist in independent music now have no idea who Audio Adrenaline is just because it's so squarely within the Christian rock scene. Um, yeah. So was that, like, did you immerse yourself? Was that, like, the first sort of music that you were able to get into from a, you know, like, a, a Christian music perspective? And were you raised from a, a religious uh, sect, as it were? Yeah, well, I don't know if it'd be a sect, I guess. I guess maybe it is a sect. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, um, my parents were always really into music. And like some of my earliest memories are concerts. Like they were very good on taking me to live music. But I was raised in a Christian household. My grandfather on my dad's side is a pastor in the Presbyterian Church. We kind of grew up more Methodist than anything else most of the time. Okay. But uh, Christian rock was always something my dad was way into. I, like he, I remember being a child and he had like striper cassettes and stuff like that, like the 80s metal, Christian metal 
band. (laughs) Um, And so that Audio Adrenaline show was a big thing for me. And up until I was 16, 15 or 16 years old, I never saw a secular band in concert. And for people that don't listen to Christian music, that's every other band. That's not a Christian band. Right, right. Um, So, yeah, the first 15 years or so, it was all Christian bands and that, like you said, it's weird because a lot of people don't know those bands, but Audio Adrenaline has sold millions of records and bands like DC Talk and stuff like that. MXPX are one of the few that I listened to as a kid that now I can tell pretty much anyone in the industry and they're like, oh yeah, MXPX, they're great. But my childhood was filled with bands like the Newsboys yeah. and Reality Check. <laughs> totally. And, um, the OC Supertones were of a big course. thing. Like, I used to love Christ- Christian Ska was my jam for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's it's kind of weird because I feel like I guess that market still exists today, but so many of the bands in the Christian space, like Skillet, is a great example because they were around ten years ago and they were a very Christian band with Christian themes and Christian marketing. And then at one point they released Monster and they kind of got all this mainstream exposure. And then they were like, "Well, if we just market ourselves as a mainstream band and still keep our Christian messages, that's that's fine and that is fine. It's perfectly acceptable. It's good business." But uh, back in the 90s, it didn't really work that way. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, I, I like to hear, I mean, because I'm in my early 30s and we're, for lack of a better term, a, a generation apart, musically speaking. But I, I had that experience as well from the, you know, going into a Christian bookstore and buying a $25 CD where you're just like, wait a minute, they shouldn't be this expensive, should they? It is so interesting to see that scene have kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, just like trying to become more of a a mainstream or crossover success. And it's like, it's, it's difficult for bands to do that. Um, because there is such a, like one of the funniest stories I've heard from a friend of mine that was working at tooth and nail at the time when, you know, this is like late nineties, early two thousands, when things were so fertile for that scene, a band like MXPX would, uh, you know, be playing some sort of Christian music festival. And then Mike would like spit on stage and tooth and nail would get like letters about it saying that that's not Christian behavior. And it was like, it's just so crazy to think that that existed for such a long period of time. It still does exist that, that, you know, Oh, that's not tolerated within the context of, of our music scene. So like you just please, please leave, please don't support this unchristian band because they spit on stage. It's true, but you know, when I think about it now, as I've gotten older, I really think that growing up within a scene like that, Um, And I don't know if it would even be called a scene, but growing up with that being like my primary genre of music, it made me appreciate, it kind of gave me a better appreciation for artists that would do that and kind of made me seek out music a little bit more fervently. Because I remember like the first time I heard Norma Jean or Me Without You, like that was a whole world of music that had been untapped in my universe. Like I didn't know that existed. Right. I didn't know that like, heavy stuff like that existed until Josh Gojan brought it into my universe of stuff. And it was like, oh, this is Christian music too? This is amazing. Does this exist elsewhere in the world? And yeah. of course, that, that genre has been around for like 20 years up to that point. But in the Christian realm, it was just like, has anyone discovered this before? Totally. You have to do a lot more work because so much of the music world is obviously, quote unquote, off limits, so to speak. So you're just like, yeah. oh, wow. Like, yeah, there's, I mean, to sometimes to a detriment where bands that saw a successful model in the mainstream world basically are just like oh hey we can be the you know whatever the pod of the christian music world even though pod was a christian band as well but just that the the uh, the analog to whatever was happening in the mainstream music world so you had like these terrible ripoff bands <laughs> in the christian music scene that were just like oh dude please, like you're, you're not even talented enough to really call yourselves a band why are you trying to rip this popular band off in the mainstream music culture. But no, I do, I do think that experience is valuable, what you're talking about. Um, you yeah, know, that's, it was good that you said POD there. They were one of those bands that like got harked on. Cause remember that album cover had someone smoking on it and yeah. they had to change it for the fundamental elements of Southtown. That album turns a decade old this month. By right. the way. <laughs> it's just, that's, yeah. that's how old we are. Let's yeah. go ahead and date ourselves. We're talking about a decade ago. Well, hey, the mu- I always say it's like the, the music, We'll always say the same age and everybody else just gets old around it. That's true. Uh, something else you did that I, I wanted to bring up in regards to, you know, your your history is, you know, you go into Ferris University, which, you know, as self-described is like this, you know, middle of nowhere college. Um, 
And, you know, you dedicated yourself to like music industry studies. There's obviously a lot of people that look at going to college for music industry stuff and are like, oh, dude, that's just a waste of money. You know, that's sort of like, oh, like, how, how do you study that stuff? But I'm sure you have a different experience because I'm sure it gave you certain skills that you necessarily wouldn't have learned otherwise. Or do you think that it was like, well, in hindsight, maybe I didn't learn a ton of stuff, but I'm glad I did it. Well, I don't know. It's a little bit of both sides of the coin. They've let me come back and talk a couple of times since I graduated. So I guess I, I left on good terms. Sure. I don't know. It's always It was always a weird thing for me, and it still is, because most of the opportunities that have come my way after college have, has been a result of blogging and of doing Under the Gun and later doing Antique and kind of all these projects I started on my own. However, none of that would have ever happened if I didn't go to college for music business. And I could have gone to college for anything else, but it's because I gave my that like four year period where I kind of could explore and be like, okay, well, I'm really interested in the music business. When I got to college, I wanted, I know exactly what I wanted to do. When I first day of college, they asked us what we wanted to do in the music industry. And I said, I wanted to be the marketing director for victory records, which in hindsight, I never want to do. Right. Well, yeah, (laughs) of course. course. By the time I was out of college, I was done with that dream, but that was what I really wanted. Like I was, I was diehard about it. And in that four years, I, you know, I got into writing and then I started the site and things kind of took off from there. But without having gone to college and kind of having the ability to explore the different facets of the music industry, I don't think that would have ever come along. So I encourage people to go. I usually don't say, if you want to study music business, minor in music business, if you can, or like do dual major and just go for marketing or business because it's 90% of the same classes and you can use your extra, the extra credits you have to get to take the same music business, the three music business courses that they'll offer you. Yeah. Because I think that's all I ever really took. I think I took one or two my freshman year and then one or two my senior year. And the rest of the time, you're just taking business or marketing courses. So you might as well get the the basic degree that'll teach you all the same stuff and then just take the extras because later on down the line or maybe before you actually get to enter the industry, you're going to need a job somewhere else. I worked at a place that sold um, wood machinery to factories for a long time. And I also worked at a place that sold, that made shelving units for Walmart before I entered the music industry. So it's good to just get a degree in something else that you can fall back on just in case things don't work out. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, yeah, I, I do like the approach of what you're talking about in regards to giving yourself the time in order to identify what it actually is that you like to do, you know? And sometimes it's like, obviously if you don't have plans to go to college or whatever, you know, you're, you don't have any time. <laughs> you got to react, yeah. react right away. But, you got to make a plan right away. And that, that's, that terrifies me. Like, I don't know how people do that. But even today, like we talked about how uh, some things are hard to let nurture and let go. It's kind of like they're your child in a way. Like to me, my accomplishments in life are the things that I've been able to create and kind of nurture up to this point. But the people I know from like my hometown who didn't go to college, most of them like entered the workforce, got married and had a kid. And their thing that they've nurtured is now an elementary school. And that's way more scary and like uh, applaud worthy to me. And uh, I don't know. So I guess I, I always encourage people to go to college just so that they can avoid those challenges. I think it's way easier to figure out who you are and find something that you're passionate about than dive into all that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, what kind of what kind of person did you find yourself being uh, being an only child and kind of, you know, going through high school and stuff like that? Like you were talking about, obviously, you know, putting on shows, um, you know, were you the, the, the kid that was, uh, you know, being able to socialize with everybody or were you kind of the Oh, that's that's the weird dude that puts on shows like, you know, where, where did you find yourself sitting at uh, in high school? I well, I didn't I never once attended lunch in four years of high school. I spent every single lunch hour in the art room. So that pretty much tells you everything you probably there, there need to you know go. Yeah. About I, my level of popularity in high school. Sure, sure. And was it was it because because of the music or just that was kind of your own? path in regards to like, okay, uh, these kids don't like me, so I'll go ahead and just sit over here. Well, I think it started because there was a girl, of course. There was a girl, and then it was the artistic stuff and and the creativity, and as it went on, yeah, I kind of... I don't know if I separated myself on my own doing or whatever. I go over it in my head all the time. That's just the kind of person I am where I play things from a decade ago that I can never change and be like, oh, did I do that the right way? Sure. Um, <laughs> but for me, it was, you know, that was my time to kind of create and get away because school, I, I was really good at school and I enjoyed going to school, but I always looked forward to those times when I could get away and like work on lyrics. I played music and kind of, I tried to do the solo acoustic sad emo thing for a couple of years before I got into music business stuff. So I did that for a while and so that was kind of where i was in high school i didn't i was the weird kid in girls jeans 
Sure, sure. Which that that is totally indicative, especially of the Midwest. It was like such because, you know, you're not getting, quote unquote, fashion input from anything beyond what you see on the Internet. So you're you're just looking at that and be like, that looks cool. Like, I guess I'll do that. Yeah, yeah. My favorite. That's why I wanted to work at Victory Records. They probably taught me all of my fashion sense between 2002 and 2006. Oh, I, I completely. I mean, I was. I, I was in the same boat, but I was ordering from the Victory uh, Records catalog in, you know, like whatever, 95, 96. And my fashion, <laughs> my fashion style was dictated by the fact that like, oh, yeah, so they only sell extra large shirts. Sure, that's fine. I need, I need my extra large Snapcase shirt. No problem. You got to fit all that rage inside. The yeah, shirt. <laughs> totally. Even though it's like, oh, wait, I'm like, you know, 110 pounds. Why is an extra large reasonable for me? You hit on something I wanted to ask as well, because like the the common trope of of a music journalist, as it were, is that like, oh, so you're a failed musician, so you could make it doing doing a band or whatever. Um, it is true, but but the I mean, was that like when you started to do your own solo stuff? Was that all consuming? Were you like, oh, I'm this is this is who I am. This is what I'm going to be. This is what I'm going to drive to be. Or um, was that was that just kind of you know a a tangent on your your path, so to speak? Yeah, I think it was more of a tangent in hindsight. I I never even wanted to play guitar at first. My uncle, we went to visit some family, and my uncle was like, "Oh, I got this guitar. Is it something that interests you?" And I was you know because he knew I was really into music. So if nothing else, it was just sweet for him to like make the connection in his brain. So I was like, "Yeah, totally. I'd love to pick it up." And then I got into it. And I heard the Bright Eyes album lifted or whatever the very long version of that album title is. Yeah, yeah. And I immediately, like every boy at that age, I think, wanted to just be Connor Overs because I was like, I have issues. I'm sad about stuff. And I have an acoustic guitar, so I could write seven-minute songs about being a waste of space and all that stuff. And so I was like, maybe I'll maybe I'll try that for a while. So I don't know if I ever thought I would go somewhere, but there's probably I know that my dad still has the demos like in a drawer at the house that I hope never ever make it back onto the internet. <laughs> well, but, let, let, let's let's be honest. I mean, everybody has to have some sort of musical embarrassment, but it you just have to look at it from like a you know a nostalgic lens where it's like dude that's where i was at when i was that age and if i mean if no one has any you know embarrassing skeletons when it comes to creating music like you're not doing it right as far as i'm concerned i don't know if you'll remember this but there was a band on uh tooth and nail in the early 2000s called calibretto 13 oh i remember the band yeah <laughs> yeah they're like an acoustic folk punk band sure and it, I, I tell you that band informed what i did later with antique records but hearing that hearing calibrator 13 as a child they were like the most non-christian christian band i'd ever heard they covered ballroom blitz and they talked about playing video games and having friends who did dumb things and i really related to it and so that's kind of what i wanted to do when i started to play acoustic music but i didn't have like the skill or the band so if you can imagine like a one-man calibrator 13 <laughs> trying to write songs in the vein of Calibretto 13 but sure. not having the talent yeah that's what it sounded like and it was not good like the more when i think about it now i'm just like i'm amazed that we went on tour like i remember playing shows and places six hours away from home and being like how did that ever happen who was that booking agent right right well <laughs> i mean it, it's it, it definitely does speak to the you know ambition that you have when you you know you're 14 15 16 and like you you know you get a record that just completely cracks your head open and you're like i want to get there like right away like i want to i want to create this magnum opus i consider to be where i should be at musically and then once you sit down to do it you're just like oh yeah it takes a lot of time and like maybe i'm not that talented <laughs> yeah i mean i don't think there's anything better in life than when you come across some type of creativity that you're instantly just like, oh, I need to do better. Like, that's that's what I should be doing. Maybe I can't do it what they're doing exactly, but, like, it makes you want to do more or it makes you want to be better at what you do because you're just like, that's the level they're playing at? Okay. Yeah. Like, like it puts you, it kind of checks you. Like, it makes you kind of, like, reflect on what your own abilities and be like, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not all that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's definitely. Yeah. It, put, it puts you in your place as as you should be put in your place. <laughs> yes. You need it. You need that in your life. Something that uh, you know, I I know you do as a person, and you know, I'm guilty of it as well. And I know a lot of other people. Uh, the idea, you know, multitasking, and obviously, it's like with your role at Under the Gun and what you do with Antique Records, and then obviously what you're doing with Holix, like you know, basically you're doing you know all these things to not only put together a, a satisfaction 
that you have within your own life, but then obviously to get a paycheck to, you know, in order to make everything uh, copacetic from a financial standpoint. Uh, do you ever feel those times where you're like, hey, maybe like, I wish I could just focus on one thing or is doing the different things kind of, uh, you know, flipping your switch? I, I do have days where I'm like, I wish I could do one thing. Some days I do just do one thing. Like some days I had, there's other editors for under the gun and antique is a busy thing, but it's not so busy that I can't like take a day off if I have to. So some days I'll just be like, listen, today's a holics day. Like today I have to focus on one. But if I do that for more than let's say a day, or if I have like a weekend where I'm like, I'm going to relax by, by Monday, I have like all these new ideas. Like maybe I'm not ready to go back to doing under the gun just yet, but I'll be talking to my fiance and I'll just be like, Oh my gosh, do you think we could just like start a film screening series like you know a 12 month one we'll do a crowdfunding page and you know i'll just have like this big ambitious project and she's like maybe you should go back to work maybe you should go and remember how much you've committed to already and i'm like okay okay go ahead and go ahead and get back and check perpetually interesting to me because i i think the problem that i find myself having and tell me if you have this as well where i find myself being like man but this like an opportunity comes across your desk or whatever and it's like that sounds like a lot of fun to do And I think that's ultimately the decision I always make. It's like, does that sound fun? (laughs) And I don't don't know if that's something that you wrestle with in your head where it's like, that just sounds like fun to do. I I think I want to do that. Yeah, no, it totally is. And my thing about it now that I'm getting older is that I'm still in the mindset where like, I never think I have to be paid for something because I'm so used to being like, oh, I'll just do it. Like, it's fun. And, you know, the music industry, you don't always get paid. So like, the other day I was talking to somebody about coming to speak at a school and they were like, well, do you have like a, do you have a fee? And I was just like, what are you talking about? I don't have to pay you. Like, I'll just, I'll drive there. That's okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so that's, that's kind of my problem with it, but I am the same way where I'm, I think it's a good thing to be that excited about all these different projects and stuff, but I, I definitely need somebody to keep me in check or I would just do terrible. There are times I stretch myself thin still, like I'm not perfect by any means, but Luckily, my fiance tries to keep me in check pretty well. Right. <laughs> we uh, th- that is definitely what we we do as uh, you surround yourself with people that are able to help you uh, protect you from yourself. You know. Exactly. <laughs> um, when you made the move from uh, the Midwest to uh, Boston, um, was that well? I guess it's kind of a two part question. I mean, for one, like, how did your parents start to feel about? Or how'd your parents feel all along as you were kind of matriculating through school and stuff in regards to you wanting to be involved in the music industry? Because I'm sure that they're, they have no context really for that themselves. Um, so was that a difficult thing for you to you know watch happen as they were like, I don't know, James, this sounds a little crazy what you're doing. My mom texted me. Sorry about that. If you heard that, sorry. Um, my, <laughs> my mom texted me yesterday to tell me to nudge me that you know if i wanted to find another career at some point they would be okay with it so i mean i'm I'm still i'm i still get that i I still have that conversation on pretty much a weekly basis but but they were always supportive um i mean they were scared i think all parents have a right to be scared whenever a child is like i like entertainment i want to entertain people for the rest of my life and thankfully at some point i was like you know what i think i want to work in the business end of entertainment that was a little bit better because when i was when i wanted to be like a musician or a rock star at 15 years old my mom was not okay with it my mom was the one who was like that's not gonna happen like this is just no just don't and then when i went to college for music business they were happy because i went to college so you know if nothing else i still had a i still had a degree and you know they still they still get worried all the time and you know even this far in i mean i've been doing working in the music industry in one facet or another for about a decade at this point including when i was in college and doing street teaming and writing and everything but they're they're still convinced like one day i'm going to call home and be like i'm ready to become a teacher so can you help me enroll in grad school i got <laughs> i'm done with this all right. so uh, it'll probably be that way until i mean my mom and dad had me young so i'll probably be 60 and still having that conversation and so that and then when you made the move from the Midwest to Boston was that a uh, was that something I presume you were obviously excited about that opportunity but was there trepidation from either your end or your parents kind of being like well there goes our our only child there he goes he's he's gone now definitely it was it's actually a really weird thing and I don't think I've actually told the story before in any of my other interviews but I I got in the job because somebody that wrote for Under the Gun was interning at this company and told me that like they paid interns $10 an hour, which was amazing money to me being from the Midwest. 
And so I, I applied and they had me fly out to do an interview. So I flew out and I did an interview and they told me that they also had a job opening in, in marketing. And I was like, oh, that'd be even better. I, I would love to go after that if possible. So they were like, okay, we'll think about it. And then I left and I flew back home and I told my parents how it went. And they were kind of on the fence about it. I had been to Boston once before. I did an internship in Boston a, a year prior during my junior, the summer of my junior year. And I had fallen in love with the city. And I was, I, the whole time I'd been like, I'm going to move to Boston if I can. So I think they felt that like if this happens, he's going to go. But then in between that, I had to go to South by Southwest. And that year for South by Southwest, I drove from Michigan to Austin, which oh. is like a 23-hour drive. Yeah, that's not short. <laughs> so we, we drive down, and we have a great time. It's The car runs fine, which is telling you what's about to happen. And <laughs> we have a great trip. We're driving back. It's 2 in the morning, and we're in Arkansas in the middle of nowhere. And the car blows a gasket. Uh. It's dead. It's not just can't, has to be fixed. It's dead. It's gone. Um, and I have no money. I have the money that I took to South by Southwest. We have like $2,000 in the bank between the two of us, and we're just stuck. Um, and so we, we get a hotel for the night, and we wake up the next morning. We go see the guy at the car shop, and he's like, yeah, uh, it, you're, you're in trouble. So we call home, and my parents are like, well, we have to work. So your guys are going to have to stay there for another day or two. And we're in a town that's literally like 500 people. We're just like, what are we supposed to do? Right. We don't have there's, – there's not even like a restaurant really. Like I don't know what we're supposed to do with our time. And we walk to this gas station to like get snacks, and my phone – and I answer it and it's our stage in Boston, the company that I eventually work for. And they're like, are you sitting down? And I'm like, yeah, in, in, in Arkansas. <laughs> and uh, they're like, well, we decided to give you the job and we need you to start on Monday and it's Friday. Oh, geez. And I'm just like, I'm like, I need a few more days. Yeah. They're like, can you, give, t- can you give me a minute? And so they say, okay, well, can you be there by Wednesday? And I was like, Maybe, I guess. So I get off the phone and my best friend had come down with me. He's sitting across the table from me and I'm just like, guess what, man? Great news. And he's like, oh, someone's coming. And I was like, no, but I got the job. <laughs> and he, he just, oh man, I'll never forget the amount of like hate in his eyes in that moment where he was just like, I could give no less, I could care no less than I do at this moment about what you just said. <laughs> I call my parents and I tell them and they're equally not that excited about it. And I and finally, we found a, uh, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my fiance, she drives down and picks us up that night. We drive back. I sleep. The next day I spend with my parents. I pack my bags. And the morning after that, I leave and drive to Boston and I haven't come back. It, it definitely gives you those those moments of perspective where it's just like, oh, man, like I, I got to make this work somehow. Like, let's figure this yeah, out. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to we had to like scramble to get me there. And I had a I had a friend and well, she, she's still a friend, but I had a friend in Boston at the time who let me sleep on her couch. That's like where I lived when I moved out here. And that was also part of the short notice. Like I was like, where am I going to live in three days? Totally. Um, and someone gave me a couch to sleep on for a month and, you know, I moved out here. So they were definitely hesitant about it. But I think all of that chaos delayed the hesitate delayed their fears until I was already in Boston. And at that point it was like the genie's out of the bottle. So we can be worried about it and scared, but he's already out there. So unless something goes wrong, he's not going to come back. And other than visiting, I, I haven't in almost five years. That's, <laughs> that's awesome. It's a good origin story in Boston. It's something that I know that I'm sure you think about on a semi-regular basis, especially with the way that you know your your vested interest in all of the projects that you're doing from under the gun and holics ever perpetual content beast i like to call it where you know the internet will never be satiated by the amount of stuff that's poured into it the question of you know quality versus quantity and all that sort of stuff do you do you you ever feel like you know you're on that proverbial hamster wheel where it's just like oh like i gotta get we have to get some more stuff up we have to get some more stuff out i know with under the gun you you definitely have you know it's kind of part of your manifesto where it's like okay it's not the frequency of posts it's the quality of posts um so yeah, yeah. i don't know how, where, where does that stuff all sit in your head you know currently as we speak where it's like well you know everybody's posting a million things a day um and is that meaningful or is it just having two good posts a day well there was a point like two years ago and under the gun where i remember there was a week where we broke 80 posts a day for like every single day <laughs> and I can tell you that nothing changed. Like right. our traffic didn't go up. Nothing happened. And I was killing myself every day. I don't even think I had a job at the time. So I'd apply for jobs and then I'd just post news whenever anything popped up. Anything. News, music, movies, whatever. Yeah. Throw it up there because we need the traffic. And then at one point, I don't know, that like that was the hamster 
hamster wheel. With Holix, I, I walked in knowing that it was going to be five articles a week, and then I personally upped it to seven. I really try to go for eight or nine, but it rarely happens because Holix is this beast where it's become every single day, whatever feature we release is like a minimum of 1,000 words, usually like three to 5,000 words. And they all come from me or like a conversation with me and somebody else. And so that has taken – I've been doing it for like – 13 months now and only in the last couple of weeks did I kind of hit a point where I was like oh this isn't so hard anymore like I can sit down and write 1200 words on almost any topic without getting like too in my head about it whereas it used to be like every day I'd wake up and kind of be like oh my gosh how am I ever going to come up with another list of reasons why you should go on tour or whatever it is you know you kind of I think I think it's a lot of like you know, just doing it over and over again. And the same goes with under the gun is, you know, over, over six years, it, it kind of becomes a routine for you. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not too terrible, but there are days when I get frustrated when I'll see that under the gun. I mean, there's like 30 people at under the gun at any given time. So it's not all me, but some days we'll have like 40 posts, but we won't have as much traffic as we did that day. We had six posts mm-hmm. and I want to throw my monitor and just like write spin media and be like, I quit. I'm done. The internet makes no sense. And, um, but you know, there's, there's two things to that, to that side, because if you're just doing a bunch of like one line news posts, which a lot of sites do bulletin board is how I like to describe it. And I think that that doesn't appeal to me. I don't like to read those kind of websites. I don't visit those websites. It's just, there's no substance there for me. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if that's the kind of content you create and nobody reads it, you don't really have a reason to be mad. Right. Under the gun, we pride ourselves on in-depth content and writing. And so most of our writers have an average posting length of around like 300 to 500 words a post, which is great. But when we have bad traffic days, like that just kills your soul as a writer. You're just like, well, nobody yeah. cares. Like what right. did I do? And that's, that's, those are the hardest days really. That, that's the hamster ball moment where you're like, I'm never going to, I'm never going to get ahead because the things nine times out of 10, the things I love that I write are the things that nobody reads. Sure. Where I'm just, where I'm just like, I wrote, I recently did like, like 2000 words on Harold and Kumar go to White Castle turning 10 years old. And I like poured my personal reflections on this movie as a kid who grew up in a Christian household, had never been exposed to drug culture and then saw this movie and was like, oh my God, I'm in love with everything about this. Right. Uh, I wrote all of this and, it, and I think it got like 300 views in like a week and it even got retweeted by the director of Harold and Kumar. And the whole time I was just like, that's not even like, that's like 200 words a reader. That's right. That's, that's my average. That's my batting average for this post. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, no, that that definitely, especially when you feel personally invested in something, and it's not just you know either a regurgitation of something that's already out there. It's like, no, this is original. These are my thoughts. This is directly related to my personal experience, and then no one reads it. Oh well. <laughs> or, yeah, and then you have the other issue where you write some pointless throwaway story, and it gets picked up somewhere, and then it has like three hundred thousand readers, and you're just like, but why, like? <laughs> Yeah. Why, why internet? Why must you do this to my spirit? Like I understand like people like a lot of people like to hate on things like Buzzfeed, but like they cracked the code, like they cracked the internet success code and you can't really hate them for that. Like they play their own game and it works. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't read it, but like they figured out what people wanted and they give it to them in large quantities. Right. And you know, and you, I mean, you, you described it perfectly. It's like, yeah, I don't read it. But this, I mean, it, it's cool what they did. And as long as they can sustain it, then they will be a successful business. But the internet is an ever-evolving beast, and who knows if that'll happen. You know, kind of what we were talking about earlier in regards to, um, you know, the authoritative voice and not really knowing what you're doing, but acting like you know what you're doing. Um, you know, continually the barrier to entry from either being in a band or obviously you know, hosting your own Tumblr page and, and calling it a music blog. Um, there's, you know, there's very little barriers to, for people to launch stuff. Um, uh, is it one of those things where when you see sites that have obviously popped up either, um, you know, after, you know, years after, obviously you did under the gun or you started it. Um, do you feel it's like, Oh man, like it, it must be easier now or man, I, I don't envy you because it's so hard amidst all the noise. Um, you know, where does it kind of sit in your head as far as the barrier to entry is concerned? It's, it's weird. It's a hard thing. I go back and forth. I definitely would hate to have to start a new music blog now because I think it's it, – when I started, I remember before we started Under the Gun, I made a serious list in my head of like the sites that I thought would be competition for the kind of content I wanted to offer. And to be honest, I only had maybe five or six names. If you asked me today – to make a list of sites that cover warp tour bands 
I mean, maybe it's because I do holics, but I could probably give you 250 without, you know, blinking an eye. There's just the amount of them is so overwhelming. I can't imagine trying to separate yourself from that. Like, I can't imagine trying to go to somebody like Mike Cabillos, who's a publicist that works for Rise Records, and being like, hey, give me an exclusive with Crown the Empire right now. I'm not having had five years of experience or 10,000 readers every day or something like that. It just, I just, I don't know how people do that on the same coin. However, I think there's an age game to it that if you're, if you're, it's a young man's game. I think at the end of the day, starting a music site is definitely a young man's game. I know some other older people that have done it and found success, but like, I I know you've talked to him before, but I just did a podcast with Zach Cirillo from Property of Zach the other day, Mm -hmm. and he's only 21 now. At the end of the interview, I was like, Zach, what are you going to be doing in five years? And he said, I won't even be as old as you are now, so I don't really have an answer for that. And I was like, I don't know, that kind of like put it into perspective for me where I was like, I am I am definitely getting into the the second generation of the, the upper class of like the senior music bloggers at this point. And it's weird at 27 to feel like you're an old man in the game. Yeah, but it's but it's kind of true in a way, because like you said, there's all these new sites and they're all run by somebody that's either in high school or in a music business program or, you know, they know or they want to be a photographer. Like those are your three categories of people who start music blogs. Right. No, for sure. It, it is interesting as we age within the context of the music, like we were joking about earlier, the music stays the same age, but we obviously get older. Um, you know, how what do you find yourself doing in order to obviously make yourself, you know, not jaded and not be like, like you said, you just quit doing the blog and, you know, be like, I would just like to listen to music just because I enjoy it, you know? Um, so what do you, what do you do to battle that? Well, I think our, my advantage in that has always been that I tried to design UTG from the perspective of being what I like. And from day one, my, what I like has always just has been as general as like something that sounds good to me. Like when I started the site, I was into pop and rock and hip hop and all that stuff. And this site was very much like warp tour centric, hot topic centric for a very long time. That's, that's my, that's how I describe that scene. Like, you know who I'm talking about. I don't know what to call it, alternative rock or whatever, but the hot topic version of bands, you know, that was kind of the focus, but when I, when that, when I, that kind of started to get boring for me, I was like, well, I have all these other interests and we can bring them in. And that's kind of what I think keeps me from getting jaded though. It also turns away some readers, I think by, because I don't get jaded when I was young, if I hated something, I would try to decimate it in a review. <laughs> like I, I was like, I, uh, there's this, there's this crunk core broken side type act called dot, dot curve that I have said things about that. I, I think if, if there is an afterlife, St. Peter will read that review to me. And be like, how could you wish this on another human being? <laughs> like, I, I mean, I've said some mean things in reviews. And as I've gotten older, like, for starters, you there comes a point where you hit a saturation moment with music where nothing sucks anymore. Like, I don't I don't hear anything. And I'm like, this just sucks. Like, I, I've reached a point where I'm like, everything has something I can like. And if it doesn't, like, it's a truly magnificent failure. And I almost cherish that as much as I do a great record. Like, if you can find something that's so awful that it lacks any redeeming value that's almost like a gem it's like a diamond rough from the world um but like recently five seconds of summer i would say has kept me from getting jaded and that's a weird thing to say and if you if the guy who started under the gun could hear me say that and be conscious of what five seconds of summer was he would punch me in the throat but you know listening to it listening to it and i actually a company gave us tickets to go see them in one direction in concert like it opened it opens my eyes like that stuff keeps me from being jaded, experiencing the other elements of music, because I think it's really easy to get burnt out in a certain segment. Like, I don't know how people who run sites that focus on one area of music do it for years and years and years and years, because that's not how my brain works. Like, I, I have to move around to keep myself interested. Mm-hmm. It comes with the multitasking. And I think it also keeps you from getting jaded. You just, you know, you find something new to appreciate. When you get burnt out on pop music, there's probably a new rock act to go discover. And, I, and I'm very much the guy who gets obsessed with something. Like, I'll spend three. I spent a like last week was the week I listened to all about that bass by Megan Trainer like a dozen times sure. every single day. I woke up and that was like my standing in line at Starbucks trying not to dance. Right, and right. that you know, and, and then I moved on, and you know, it's not forever, but it you know, it, it kind of just gives you a new reason to care about music. You know, you find something out there that you're just like, oh wow, this is someone is still doing something new. Someone is still finding a way to catch me off guard. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's a really, really good point. And I think it's something that, I mean, cause obviously when you're, when you're younger and you first start to get into music, you draw these huge lines in the sand of just like, I am never going to listen to this style of music or this sort of band. And then, like you said, as you age, you're just like, 
oh no, like I can see the validity in what it is that they're doing. And then maybe you actually give them a chance and you're like, wow, I like this. What was I missing out on for years and years and years? Um, but yeah, to be able to look, look at your musical taste and be like, they should expand because it's like when they do, yeah, get stuck in those routines. That's when it's like, yeah, you just kind of become that, you know, very average music listener, which is fine. But for people like you and I, we don't want that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's true. And it's, you know, especially as somebody who puts your opinion out there, it's, it's, it can be very difficult to embrace that on your blog because as the more you do it, you know, you get an audience and you, you become known for having an opinion on certain things or saying something very general about a certain kind of music. And then when you try to bring in those new elements, there will be people who call you on it and be like, Hey asshole, you told me that you didn't like this kind of thing two years ago in this one post from March. And you're just like, Oh, well, I'm sorry. I guess, I guess I don't know what else to say in that situation. You know, I apologize. Like, I'm sure that's a, a somewhat extreme example, but people legitimately call you out on that. Yeah. I mean, people will, people have stopped reading the site for like the most ridiculous reasons. Someone tweeted at us the other day. It, it was a tweet that I, it wasn't a tweet. It was on Facebook. And I, I tweeted about it because I thought it was so, it was such a ridiculous statement that my brain like kind of broke for a moment. This person wrote on our Facebook wall, you wrote about five seconds of summer and trashed Attila in one week. I'm done. And I was like, what? Yeah. Huh? <laughs> I think that's, I, I was like, I was just scratching my brain and I was just like, I don't, like, did both of those things make that person upset? I, right. Uh, but people will, I'll, I'll get tweets all the time. When I, we went to see, I went to see Miley Cyrus back in April, and I wrote this editorial about it called I Watched Miley Cyrus Cry on Stage for 120 Minutes because she cried on stage for 120 minutes. <laughs> and Diane Martell, who's this music video director, she made Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines video. She apparently read my editorial, and she tweeted at me calling me a, bunch of profane things and it kind of took off and then i got all these emails from people that were like i've read dtg for a long time i can't believe you go after miley like that i'm like <laughs> i just find it's it's so interesting because it's like you know obviously what you're writing is is in some way shape or form obviously trying to provoke a reaction from people and like that's mm -hmm. to have that discourse is what you know is what everybody desires like at least you're having a reaction to something but yeah it's it's just it's just mind-boggling that especially from the the perspective of like people digging up like hey this is like when i first discovered the site this is what it should be so why have you changed it in two years that's what it's like what like have you not yeah. do you not understand that things evolve well when we started to do movies that i i got a ton of messages from people who were like you used to cover more of the scene you know the the hot topic work tour scene and now you guys are doing movies what gives and i was just like well i i also happen to like movies and i wish i had a better like a business ex explanation for you but you're reading my site and i i like movies so we're going to start talking about movies now and you know that turned some people off but it brought some people in and i don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing i think as the site grows and as you evolve as a writer that's how you really find your audience. The people who are following you or reading something you wrote on it, you know, just if they see a link and they read one thing, like they're not really your audience as much as the people who can call you on that stuff. And sometimes it, it can be good. You know, sometimes people can say like, well, now you're just saying you're, you know, you're going against something you said earlier. And I don't know that it's bad that they call you on that. It's embarrassing, no doubt, but there's a part of it that kind of makes you feel loved, you know, like yeah. oh, somebody, somebody cares enough to hate me. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. they, they, they care enough to know that much about me that they can be like, you're not being the person that I thought you were or whatever it is. Even if you don't think they're right, it's, you know, there's still something nice about that. Uh, the worst thing for any piece of art is to be, you know, vanilla where it's just like, Oh yeah. Like yeah. it's not bad. It's, it's okay. If you're provoking that sort of reaction, um, on a regular basis, that's when it's like, well, you're not really contributing to anything. It's just more <laughs> noise, you know? Um, and the last thing I want to hit on was, was the, you know, obviously with your work at Holix and, you know, I recommend anybody that is a fan of music industry stuff to obviously go visit the blog. Cause you do, I mean, you do great work there. I'll just, I'll just go ahead and say that. <laughs> well, thank you. People tell me that I don't, it's that's, let me tell you this, the Holix blog is the only time in my entire writing career. So there's, you know, five, six years before Holix comes into the picture yeah. where people that I don't know personally have come to me and been like, 
oh, I read the blog often, or like, I really like what you're doing with that. And I don't, it's a thank you. I mean, it's an overwhelming compliment to receive, but as a writer, you know, the, there's that part in the back of your brain where you're like, well, what did they think about the other five years with yeah. the stuff I've been doing this whole time? Yeah, no, <laughs> but no. this is all completely different. And I, I get what you're saying, but uh, thank you. I just, I, I just wanted to bring that up because every time someone says, it, I'm just like, it, it takes me back. I'm not, you know, I don't think anyone that writes is ever like used to hearing people say that. And if you are, you feel very jaded. So. Right. And I think what's interesting about it is obviously it's like it, it captures your voice and interest, but at the same time, it also completely encapsulates what Holix as a product and service is. And so, and that's like, that's so hard to do because it's like you look at, you know, whatever you look at like product placement in a movie and it's like, you know, you look at transformers or whatever and it's like, Oh yeah, there's like 9 million things in there. And like a lot of them feel, you know, shoehorned in. I didn't see the movie. So I'll just put, I'll just preface it by saying that, but the, you know, essentially what you're doing is, is product placement, but it's done from a very genuine standpoint that actually provides worth and that's why I think is is obviously you know commendable and exciting because it's it's providing a service but not um, you know not trying to sell you anything. It's just like oh yeah, Holix is is a thing yes. you should be aware of. Yeah. Well, I mean, from day one when I approached Matt because like I didn't apply to Holix. So what happened was is I've been a fan of Holix since we we started under the gun and the first Holix promo I got, I was just like, Oh my gosh, I think this could change the internet. Like this is, this is how music promo should be delivered. And I would tweet at them over years. And I never knew that it was just like this guy in Minnesota or wherever Matt lives. And, and then one day I was like, at, I, I don't know why, but I was just like, Holix should do more because I think I, I think what happened was I probably got a promo from another company whose name I won't say. And I hated it so much that I was like, why don't all companies use Holix? And that led to a bunch of tweets between Holix where I, I explained that like, you know, I do social media and I think you guys could benefit from, you know, doing more marketing. People need to know about what you do. And that led to an email where they were, where Matt, the guy that founded Holix was just like, Hey, do you want, do you want to do that? Do you want to be that guy? And he asked me to come up with a plan. And as soon as I did, I, I don't know what drew, drew me to it, but the very first idea I had in my head when I was trying to figure out like, how do we market this product? Cause I'm not a business to business kind of like, that's not how my brain works. I'm very much consumer centric. I thought of Nike, like oddly enough, Nike is kind of the blueprint for how Holix marketing works because you see an ad for Nike and all you see is like, whoever the i don't watch sports so we'll just say michael jordan as a as a person to use that was the one i stopped watching sports um, sure so michael jordan appears he doesn't even have to say nike he just appears you see the swoosh and because michael jordan appears people go oh nike's a good product so my idea was like well record labels want to make journalists happy because the idea is that if journalists are happy, they'll be more inclined to like whatever I've sent them. If they're frustrated, my idea is like, if I receive a promo, even if I'm happy about the album, if accessing the album is a pain, by the time I get to it, like I'm already frustrated. Like I'm not able to enjoy the album in a pure sense. So I was just like, if we could find a way to align ourselves with people that the record industry wants to work with, then the record industry will want to work with us. And it's worked surprisingly. And as, you know, as I realized that I couldn't just interview people all the time or else I would drive myself insane. We wanted to do, you know, the editorial side of things. And my idea there was like, well, let's try to align ourselves again with not people as much as an idea. And that idea is building a better music industry. Like, like you said, music business courses in college, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier. They're not always the best at preparing people for the day to day, but I think through our blog, we're able to do that. We're able to educate people and we're kind of trying to, we don't really have a lot of conversation, but I guess in a way that's what we're trying to accomplish is just to be like, you know, there are ways into the industry for anyone, artists and future professionals alike. And if we work together, we can make more of those. And, you know, it's, it's not as hard as it is as long as we all work together. And that's kind of what it all comes back to. And hopefully people align those two things. You know, they think holics and they think, you know, fighting piracy and working to a better future. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think that it's something it's something as as quote unquote boring as, you know, anti-piracy software <laughs> that, yeah. that that can be, um, you know, spruced up to be where it's like, well, no, this is essentially just saying like we're we're trying to develop a community and we are trying to make sure that labels across the board, no matter what they're releasing of the independent and larger variety, they should be protected. This is how you can obviously do that. Yeah. And 
you know, people are coming on. We've grown a lot since we launched the blog, and I don't, I don't know, I don't think that that's like because of me. I never do. Like, uh, we the blog is very popular, and I'm very thankful for that. But it's it's strange, you know. It's it's weird to watch the company grow because we 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 um, a lot of indie labels come to us. Like the majority of our clients are indie labels. The majors haven't come over yet, and I haven't exactly. I'll be honest, I haven't figured out how to tap that crowd but i think it's a it's a whole different monster and a lot of people don't understand that when you work with an indie record label as you probably know the guy you email with is the guy who helps make decisions oh yeah when when you email with like a warner brothers the guy who sends you a copy of an album as an advance has no say in the decision of who like how that advance is sent he just comes into the office and does his job yeah no, no, for sure. Um, yeah, he, he, you know, it's, he showed up to collect there, his paycheck. Exactly. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just how those big corporations work. And, you know, we're such a small company. I mean, there's only three people at Holix behind the scenes. There are other people that kind of help us out from time to time. But on a day-to-day basis, there's three of us. And, you know, I think that's attractive to smaller companies. But we'll crack. We'll crack the majors. I'm confident. You know, I, I tell Matt all the time that we'll get there. Maybe it's bad to boast like that, but we will. People seem to like it. So once you have enough uh, quote unquote market penetration from an independent perspective, they're like, oh, I guess we should listen, which is basically like the major label model for everything. <laughs> and it's strange because if you notice, none of our competitors do it. Like we've been doing this for over a year now, like hardcore social media marketing and the editorial and messaging and branding. That's been a focus very fervently for like 13, 14 months at this point. And none of our competitors, even some of the bigger ones that are worth millions of dollars, none of them have a web presence. There's no, there's no Twitter feed. There's no blog. There's no voice. And I just, I'm of the opinion as somebody who's worked in the startup world, very directly with music and not directly with music that you can't really have a digital business these days without having a voice. That's, that's just how marketing works these days. And we're in this, you know, we've stumbled into a niche where we're able to do that almost free from challenges. I hope that one, I mean, I'm, I'm welcoming them. If they're out there, come at me. Yeah. That's, <laughs> but, uh, that's but it's, you know, it's, it's kind of strange to see like our success grow and not see it reflected in our competition just yet. But it, I mean, maybe it also speaks to the state of the market. We are, as you said, kind of a behind the scenes thing, you know, we're not the average, the average person doesn't really know what watermarking is or what it does or how it works. It's very much an industry focused thing. Well, I am really appreciative of you hanging out and thank you for being so so professional and courteous and a, a good dude. So I'm glad that you didn't suck as an interview. <laughs> so that was Mr. Shotwell. I'll, I'll give you a little behind the scenes, inside baseball. So he, uh, I didn't know him at all. He was very, very persistent in emailing me. And when I say persistent, not like that's sometimes code for annoying. He was never annoying, but he's very professional in the way that he presented the idea of him appearing on the show. And ultimately, uh, for lack of a better term, I was kind of like worn down where I'm like, you know what? He's been super cool. I see why he wants to be on the show. And I just, I, it was a very professional transaction. And I was really glad that I had him on the show. It was just cool because, you know, sometimes people could be a little annoying. You're like, yeah, I get it. I get it. I understand you'd like to do this cool, you know, show and talk for an hour about yourself because i mean who doesn't want to talk about themselves for an hour there are very few people that are just like "Ah, i'm not interested in that but uh yeah i was very very glad that uh, james was persistent and uh yeah he's he's a good dude because of it so the editor and producer for this show as always is tom richfield visit propertyofzack.com visit 100wordspodcast.com and uh, man i'm exhausted i'm leaving for philly tomorrow and i just uh, i'm i'm ready to be home for a while so until next week be safe everybody (laughs) 